0: We come this evening to 2 Samuel 22, David's majestic psalm. <clears throat> Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, <clears throat> the songs of this psalmist are recorded for us. We upon whom the end of the ages has come. And what is here is your very life, life that David himself possessed. We would pray that you would indeed raise up our life, even as through the narrative spirals the upward spirals of David's own life, he was raised up to your heavenly throne. You bless us now as we seek to understand what the Spirit says to the church through this song of Israel of old. We pray in the name of the eschatological David, your Son, our Savior, Jesus, Amen. Amen. Second Samuel 22 presents us with a shift in genre from prose to poetry. It is not the first time we have encountered the poetic medium in the Samuel corpus. You will recall the lament for Saul and Jonathan, which inaugurates our narrator's second volume. That we encounter Hebrew poetry once again in the story of David, Israel's poet par excellence, reminds us of the nature of the biblical poetic idiom. An idiom with its bicola or typical two lines of Hebrew per verse. It's beat or cadence or rhythm its building block or lego approach to the whole of the poem and its profound use of symmetry or parallelism second samuel 22 which is similar to psalm 18 has all of this and has it in profusion, in profusion in one of the longest poems in the entire Hebrew Bible. David has left us a remarkably full expression of his poetic heart, a heart in the Lord, a heart united to God the Lord. If we shift genre from prose to poetry, I want to underscore the fact that we are shifting from narrative prose to narrative poetry. From narrative prose to narrative poetry. The poetic idiom of Second Samuel 22 Continues the story of the life of David, a story now narrated in poetry to complement the story in prose. In fact, the poetry here is autobiographical, recording in our subject's own words his personal reflection and his summation of his royal career. If much of the life of David in our narrator's account of his career has been biographical, objective, historical reporting of the facts of David's life recorded with a remarkable literary flair under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then The same inspiring Holy Spirit has superintended David's poetic autobiography here in chapter 22. These 51 verses are David's self-expression of his life story, a self-expression that is theocentric from beginning to end. God, the Lord, is at the center of David's autobiographical poem as God, the Lord, has been at the center of David's life. As David, the subject of this poem, the I or the me or the my, first person, personal pronoun of second Samuel 22. As David, the subject of this poem, reviews his life, the object of his poem, the you, the thou of 2 Samuel 22, is the Lord God. This subject-object drama, this I-thou interface, confirms the observation of Gerhardus Voss in his magnificent article, The Eschatology of the Psalter. Voss brilliantly, if not matter-of-factly, observes that the Hebrew poets write as the subjects of the Lord, who is their chief objective delight. And as God is the object of the Hebrew poet's praise, it is not God in his being, per se. Rather, as Voss points out, the Hebrew poets rhapsodize God's acts, God's deeds, God's work in history, especially that work of God which has touched the life of the subject, namely the poet himself. Voss directs our attention to the historical dimension in Hebrew poetry, not primarily the devotional dimension. 2 Samuel 22 and all the Hebrew Psalms are reflections on what God has done in history for the writing poet. What acts of God the Lord have transformed? What deeds of God the Lord have changed? What events in history of God the Lord have nurtured What acts of God in history have brought the life of the poet into contact with God and his life? The I-thou dynamic in Hebrew poetry is a relational paradigm. The poet in relationship with God the Lord in and through concrete historical event. The subjective I in relationship with the objective thou. A relationship sealed by the interrelationship, the interrelationship of time and space history between the Lord God and the poet. Every Hebrew psalm is telling us something that God did. Something that God did in history. Something God the Lord did which drew the poet into God's story. Into God's life. Into eschatological life into the eschatological story. Boss's magisterial essay helps us to see that there is far more than the devotional in the Hebrew Psalter, far more than the emotional in Hebrew poetry. Boss's essay reminds us that the Psalms including Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, are historical revelation, revelation of God in history, in the history of one of his elect children. A child of God intones his poetic praise for the history of God's acts in his own personal life. Thus 2nd <clears throat> Samuel 22 is historical revelation, not devotional meditation. 2nd Samuel 22 is a story. A story in poetry of David's history in God the Lord we are reading David's versified autobiography of how God acted in his history. His story interfaces with God's story. And so, in this magnificent poem, in 2 Samuel 22, David is looking back. He is looking back over the story of his life, and he is recording God's involvement with his life. How God saved his life in history. How God protected his life in history. How God defended his life in history. How God delivered his life from his enemies in history. There is history here in 2 Samuel 22, poetic, descriptive history, because David is remembering, even as he is extolling, God's mighty acts in history. God's mighty acts in his David's history I have suggested that David has penned a poetic review of his life in relationship with the Lord here in 2nd Samuel 22 The fact that the author of 2nd Samuel places this poem in the climactic section of his story of David, confirms this retrospective review of the Lord and David. The end of David's story contains a poem of David and his Lord as David's end approaches. It is no coincidence that 2 Samuel 22 is followed by the last words of David in chapter 23. We are entering the death scene of David. We are sitting beside his deathbed. We are listening to David's poetic peons of adoration Exaltation, humiliation, and redemption as he draws his last breaths. At the climax of our author's story of David, the climactic words of David at the end of his life in the Lord. Is this not somewhat? Typical? Is this not somewhat typical? Are not these valedictory poems somewhat typical of the fathers of Israel? Does not Jacob say farewell with poetic blessing in Genesis 49? Does not Moses bid farewell? in poetic song in Deuteronomy 32, a song which he follows by a Jacob-like poetic benediction upon the sons of Israel. And though David departs with no tribal benediction upon his lips, nonetheless, he projects the hesed, the grace or loving kindness of the Lord in verse 51, the grace of the Lord to and through his anointed, his Messiah, his son of David. And that David prophesies that David prophesies has said Olam grace forever. The last words of David are replete with the eschatological grace of his greater Son. Last week, we outlined the macro structure of 2 Samuel 21 to 24, and you will note that I have replaced it on the outline for this evening. As we review that paradigm this week, notice the two poems and their two respective bookends. Second Samuel 22, 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 7, bookended by the list of David's mighty men Chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. Chapter 23, verses 8 to 39. At the entrance and at the exit of David's poetic praise, that God the Lord has established his throne and his kingdom, David's warrior heroes. As the guardians of his throne and his kingdom, David's mighty warriors stand around him as he pours forth his poetic exaltation. God has been at work in gathering to his elect king warriors strong and courageous, strong and courageous to establish, to guard, to protect, to stand, to preserve the Lord's king in his kingdom. This bookend device is not accidental. It is intentional and theologically significant. But the bookend feature is not exhausted by the honor roll of warriors framing David's valedictory poetry. We observe also the poetic bookends to the Samuel corpus. Our narrator records a poignant poem at the beginning of his history, even as he records two evocative poems at the conclusion of his history. The Song of Hannah, a poetic song in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10, balances the poetic finale of 2 Samuel in chapters 22 and 23. Nor is this merely literary symmetry our author balances a dramatic poem at the beginning of the Samuel narrative with an equally dramatic poem at the end of the David narrative because he is enveloping, he is enfolding, he is enclosing the prose narrative with the poetic narrative. Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 and David's song here in 2 Samuel 22 share a theological symmetry, a mirror reflection parallelism which is dramatically revealed in the very same duplicate vocabulary. Nearly every Vocabulary word of Hannah's song is found here in David's song. David's song reprises nearly every Hebrew word of Hannah's song. The use of similar vocabulary underscores the theological framework of the Samuel corpus as a whole. Our author introduces the theology of humiliation and exaltation in the poetic song of humiliated yet exalted Hannah, exalted to be the mother of the prophet of the monarchy. And our author caps the theology of humiliation and exaltation in the poetic song of David, humbled and exalted by the Lord as the Lord's Messiah. In between, in between Hannah's song and David's song, the humbling of Eli and the exaltation of Samuel, the humbling of Saul, and the exaltation of David. The basic theological motif of 1st and 2nd Samuel is the bringing down of the mighty and the lifting up of the lowly. The poetic bookends to our narrator's Samuel corpus announce his consistent theological theme, The proud are abased, the humble are lifted up, all by the work of God the Lord. We have noted this upward and downward spiral as the story of Saul and David has unfolded. And our author, our author envelops his narrative antitheses with poetic expressions of his central theological message. Up and down vectors are there at the beginning. Up and down vectors are there at the end. Up and down vectors unfold with the unfolding narrative drama. Poetic symmetry announces, reinforces, Climaxes theological symmetry. While we are observing symmetry, let us examine chapter 22 for the same. You will notice the name David frames the chapter. David in verse 1, David in verse 51. Thus, there is an inclusio of character. The central narrative character is around this song. But you will also notice a subordinate inclusio which frames verse 1 and verse 49. The words delivered and enemies. The duplicate Hebrew word root in verse forty nine is translated rescue instead of deliver in the New American Standard Version, disturbing the symmetry. It is a check mark against the NASB, and I rarely say that. So Second Samuel twenty two is a song which enfolds the drama, the narrative poetic drama of David and his enemies with the Lord's delivering hand, saving him from those who rose up against him. As with the broader poetic inclusio to the whole of 1st and 2nd Samuel, so too with this concluding poetic portion. And Inclusio folds around the drama of God's deliverance of David from all his enemies. The upward vector of the Lord's deliverance is contrasted with the downward vector of David's and the Lord's enemies. Verse 1 is the superscription, written above the psalm proper. It contains a retrospective perspective on David's career. He is looking back over the history of how the Lord delivered him from the hand or the palm of Saul, and the hand or the palm, notice the duplication, of his enemies. Symmetrical duplication, even in the superscription. We have already noted how these terms bracket the entire psalm, verse 1 and verse 49, duplicate, deliver, and enemies. That word deliver also recurs in verse 18, a verse which also contains the word enemy. Enemy. The repetition of vocabulary is a significant repetition of motif. The mention of Saul in verse 1 opens up the historical retrospect to a specific historical enemy. Hence, the poetic language of this psalm is going to reflect upon the enmity of Saul against David and the concomitant history of David's deliverance from Saul by the hand of God. Looking back over his life, David recalls the Lord's deliverance from his inveterate enemy, Saul. The word translated hand here is actually the palm of the hand or the hollow of the hand or the cup of the hand. I regard it as significant that the superscription contains two terms which appear together in two subsequent verses of this psalm, verse 18 and verse 49, Both repeat the terms deliver and enemies. Enemies also appear in verse 38 and verse 41. David looks back at divine deliverance from Saul, his initial nemesis, but also on the enemies whom he pursued and destroyed, verse 38, which would include the Philistines, of 2nd Samuel 5:17 to 25 and the opponents of 2nd Samuel 8 Moabites, Aramaeans, Ammonites and Edomites. May we include the rebels? May we include the rebels Absalom and Sheba as well as the giants of Philistia noted in the previous chapter the end of chapter 21. I think the comprehensive term all his enemies in verse 1 covers all those Saul included who raised their palm against the Lord's anointed, who lifted up their hand against the Lord's Messiah, who attempted to fold into the cup of their grasp the Lord's Anointed. But before we proceed with further details, let's attempt to get a feel for the overall movement of the psalm. This is a very long psalm, even by biblical standards, so a summary of how it unfolds. May help us not to lose the forest for the trees. So let us have you produce the outline and let's begin by me asking the questions. You are the students. What do you make of verses two and three? What kind of language do we have here?
1: There's all kinds of words that describe God as a deliverer.
0: Okay, we have attributes of God being described here. And they're being described in what kind of style or with what kind of expression? Are these just matter of fact? Protective. Yes, that's one of his attributes. But what's the style of the language here? It is the language of exaltation. It's the language of extolling God and his attributes. So the characteristics of God are being extolled here in verses 2 and 3, and these two verses begin the outline of the broad poem. How would you arrange the next section of the psalm? In other words, how would you look in the following verses for the next division or the next portion of the psalm as it unfolds. Obviously, you're going to begin with verse 4, right? So where are you going to end? Seven. Verse 7. Very good, Bob. Why did you say that, Bob?
1: Well, because that's The uh, the end of where he's talking about his troubles and he's going back and speaking of God doing things.
0: I like the fact you pointed out he's speaking of his troubles here. Yes, this is the poet in distress. This is David under duress. But why did you frame this section with four and seven? He called in verse 4 and? He heard. Not yet. Uh, It is at the end of verse 7, but what is the beginning of verse 7? Called again. Notice the bracket there, okay? He calls upon God in verse 4. He repeats or duplicates it symmetrically in verse 7. And in between, he folds in, as Bob pointed out very well, his troubles, his distresses. So there's your next section of the psalm, verses 4 to 7. And what does God do? He pays no attention.
1: What is the next
0: section of the psalm? What does God do? He acts. He acts. How does he act, Kay? Well, violently. violently. Uh, yes. Well, I wouldn't say violently. He acts powerfully. Okay? This is a majestic act of God. This is one of his mighty acts in Magnalia Day. God reacts to David's call by acting on David's behalf and acting with majestic power. All right? <clears throat> He comes forth with the force of a what? Earthquake. Earthquake with the force of a what?
1: Like a volcano.
0: Like a volcano? Come on, you Linwood people, what have you been hearing? Being taught on Sunday mornings. God marching forth in what?
1: I, I guess we're going to have
0: to give an exam after the sermons. <laughs> God marching forth in Habakkuk 3 in theophonic glory. This is theophonic appearance of God. Theophany marching forth in theophany. How far does this description go in, Psalm, in 2 Samuel 22? How far would we bracket this from verse 8 to what? Verse 16, correct. So the next section is the theophonic appearance of God from verse 8 to 16. And he comes forth in the guise of what? This is a theophonic march of God, but he comes forth in the guise of what? Bill, you're nodding your head. What? Storm. Storm, no. No. I'm not sure
1: what you mean.
0: He comes forth as a mighty warrior. He comes forth as a mighty warrior armed with lightning bolts and thunder, with the clouds under his feet as the dust of the earth is trampled Into clouds by his mighty appearance. Notice that this warrior appearance of God and this theophonic appearance is precisely adapted to be a mirror of the warrior David. All right, so we're up to verse 16. Obviously, verse 17 begins the next section of the psalm, and how far would you extend this next section? Very good, Kay. Why?
1: Talks about
0: what God did, how he rescued him. Yes, God, he called to God, God comes and makes this majestic appearance, and God does what in verse 17? He drew me out. What did he do in verse 20? He brought me forth. Okay, so K's expression of what God did on David's behalf by drawing him out of his distress, bringing him out of his distress, is bracketed by verses 17 to 20. All right, the next section of the psalm begins with verse 21, and where are we going to extend this next section?
1: Louder. 25.
0: 25, very good. <clears throat> You're doing very well by picking up the clues. All right, why do you say uh, we go to 25 for the next section? Now, uh, no, it's even clearer than that. Okay, if you have an accurate translation like the American Standard, verse 21 begins, recompense me according to my righteousness. Verse 25, recompense me according to my righteousness. There's your bracket. Alright, now here we have David's integrity being displayed. David's righteous integrity being displayed. <clears throat> That's the next unit here. Now what? Obviously we begin with verse 26. How far are we going to extend this next section of the psalm? To 30. To verse 30, and why? Uh, it's God showing himself. That's... That is true, that is true. But what unites those five verses, 26 through 30? You're right, Robert. God is showing himself, but he's not showing himself again in the way he did in the theophany between verses 8 to 16. It shows
1: him his integrity.
0: I'm not going to deny that, but that's not the prominent feature here. What's the pronoun? You. It's the you pronoun. Notice the you pronoun goes all the way through. So it's God's Uh, relationship to David in terms of David addressing him as you consistently through this section. God's character, especially as light. Notice verse 29. All right, now, verse 31 then begins the next section of the psalm. And how far do we extend it this time? too far notice what the clue was to 26 to 30 look for the same clue from 31 on is it just
1: 33 then? because he's talking about God.
0: he's talking about God, but how is he addressing him? He's third pronoun. what pronoun? Third-person pronoun, and how far does it go? To 35, 35. that is correct. Notice the he pronoun from 31 to 35, because in 36 he switches back to the second-person personal pronoun, to the you pronoun once again. So in this section, in 31 to 35, David is equipped as a warrior. Notice the reciprocal symmetry, God appearing as the theophonic warrior, now David equipped as the warrior in 31 to 35. Now, from 36 how far do we go? 37. Did somebody say 41? You're still a little bit short, but you're getting the idea. All the way to 44 because you'll notice from 36 to 44 the you pronoun predominates. And here God is enabling David to pursue and defeat his enemies having equipped him as a warrior. Now he proceeds to, uh, to to chase after and to confound his enemies. Now, verse 45 is parallel to what verse? The next one on. 45 and 46 are parallel. They begin with the very same word, foreigners. And here we have a different motif. It's actually announced at the end of verse 44. So we have to kind of cheat a little bit and say that actually 44 B and C and 45, 46 are parallel because they're dealing with the motif of David's reign over the nations, over the foreigners which means that we're up to verse 47. And finally, the poem concludes with a what? Uh, praise. How do you conclude your service here every Sunday morning? With hey, a doxology, okay? The psalm concludes... 47 to 51, with a doxology in which the vocabulary of verses 2 and 3 reappears. So we actually have symmetry of vocabulary at the beginning and the end. You will notice the words rock, salvation, and violence, which are repeated symmetrically in verse 3, verses 2 and 3 and verses 47 to 51. In this final doxological expression, once again, David gives voice to the superlative glory of God, the same glory with which he opened his song. All right, so the flow of David's song is from God at the beginning in invocation back to God in doxology at the end. The drama of David's song parallels the drama of his life history. Distress because of his adversaries crying out unto the Lord. God's wonderful intervention on David's behalf. David's rescue by the power of God. David's character as a mirror of God's character. David equipped and enabled by the Lord to fight the good fight. And David as Messiah in covenant at the very close of his psalm, at the very close of his life. There's your broad outline of the movement of this poetic narrative drama. The song is very nearly the pinnacle of the upward spiral to David's story. This is a marvelously upbeat testimony to David's relationship with the Lord and the Lord's relationship with David. It is altogether fitting that it caps and climaxes this mighty king's career. And at the center of that relationship is God the Savior. God The Savior. God's salvation and God's character as Savior. A constant refrain in this Psalm three times in verse three, again in verse four, verse 28, 36, 42, 47, 51, nine times the term for salvation and its cognates in Hebrew is sprinkled through these poetic couplets. Three times in verse 3, verse 4, 28, 36, 42, 47, and 51. David proclaims his Savior, rejoices in his salvation, juxtaposes God's saving grace to the wrath of enmity, and death threats of his foes. David is conscious of God's salvation in history, in his history. And God the Savior is mirrored in David the Saved. Now, this description of God as Savior must be set alongside of God's other relational dynamics with David. In this series we have encountered the Emmanuel relation of God to David, God with him and reciprocally symmetrically he with God. The motif of union and identification And participation with and in the Lord is featured in Emmanuel, God with us, David included. We have also encountered the motif of David's life, bundled with the living God. David's life wrapped up in the very life of God who is life. This too. Is a motif of union and identification and participation. David's life in God and reciprocally, symmetrically God's life in David. Finally, we have previously encountered the father son relation in David's story the deeply profound relation of God as a father to David and David as a son of his heavenly father. This paternal filial dynamic is covenantally sealed, a relation of union and identification and participation which reflects something virtually, Virtually, I say, reflects something virtually ontological. God as David's father, David as God's son, astounding, prophetic, and wonderfully eschatological. Now, to the richness of David's Emmanuel experience, to the poignancy of David's being bundled into the life of God to the mind-boggling relation of God the heavenly father of David his son to all this lush lavish wealth of relational imagery second samuel 22 adds the savior salvation motif i ask you is this not an embarrassment of riches Is this not too high for us? We cannot attain unto it. Oh, but it is not. No, it is not too high. For the Lord most high has condescended to make all these surpassing riches our own. David's own. In saving us. In giving us his life, in being Emmanuel to us, in regarding us as his children, as sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. David dramatically adds one final keyword, word, virtue, to the wealth of his relational dynamic with his Lord. The Lord is my Savior. He has saved me from certain destruction at the hand of those who hated me. And now let's begin to examine the psalm in more detail. Remembering that this is poetic genre, what type of language do we find in verses 2 and 3 the first section of the psalm that we identified in our broad outline what kind of language in verses 2 and 3 <laughs> what kind of language is it Ling? Don't get distracted in my classes. What kind of language is it? Um, Come on, literary person who just walked in late. What kind of language is it?
1: I don't even know what are talking about? Well, then, why
0: aren't you on time? All right. She was serving me as a good servant, <laughs> taking people who have been on a mission trip. Before. No, no, I'm not talking about her. <laughs> what kind of language do we have? This is metaphor. This is a language of metaphor. That is, transferring to God what is not literally true of him, but is expressive of his attributes and characteristics. Now, Pastor Bostine, if you were selecting a hymn to sing along with this text, what hymn would you choose?
1: Psalm 18? No. Elder to Burn,
0: what song, would you choose? what song would you choose? What hymn would you choose?
1: The Lord is my
0: rock. Go ahead, Kristen. Rock of Ages. Rock of, Ages. of course, you'd choose Rock of Ages. The Lord is my rock. All right. And in addition to the uh, traditional tune for the top lady poem, you must also uh, uh, sing the stirring version Of James Ward, number 500 in the Red Trinity hymnal. From what does this imagery arise? The imagery in these two verses arises from David's history from David's fleeing from Saul, from David hiding and taking refuge in rocks and crags and in strongholds, Masada, of the rugged wilderness regions of Israel. I am confirming my approach to the biographical character of this poem by referring to the experience of David in the rocks and crags and fortresses where he hid from his enemies, including King Saul. The autobiographical element in David's experience is clear here, is it not? God the Lord in his rock-solid sufficiency is extolled by David as God acted like a fortress, God acted like a refuge, God acted like a stronghold to protect David from Saul and his enemies. What else? is noteworthy in verses 2 and 3. Over and over and over again. Verses 2 and 3. The personal pronoun... Over and over and over again. How exhaustively David defines God as his own. His own personal Lord. God. Refuge. Deliverer. Savior. Rock. He piles on these metaphors as he piles on expressions of his experience of God's personal relationship to his story. Notice the mirror. He saved me because he took me into his saving attribute, his saving characteristic. He is my refuge because he hid me in the palm, in the cup, of his hand of refuge, his refuge-nurturing attribute. He is my rock because he has taken me into his character as steadfast, unmovable, the rock in whom I am hewn and shaped and molded and established forevermore. I do not want you to miss the mirror image David extols the rock of his salvation because the Lord, his rock and salvation drew David to himself, entered into a rock solid relationship with David. The language of my here is language in response. God said my first. My saved one, my delivered one, my rescued one, sat upon a rock, shut up in my stronghold, my fortress. Second Samuel 22, 2 and 3 is the poet's expression in response to God's acts. God's acts on his behalf. It is God the Lord who has saved, delivered, and rescued David. And so David sings... David sings God's saving, delivering, rescuing grace. I want you to take special note of the exalted prominence of God the Lord here. He is preeminent, and David extols that preeminence. There is no human sufficiency here. There is no hint of self-sufficiency, of self-worth, of self-deserving, of self-merit. There is none of that here. Because the God of grace and his gracious attributes are dominant here. David, son of Jesse, saved by divine and supernatural grace, responds. He responds by extolling the divine and supernatural attributes of the God of that grace. And the word horn in verse 3 the word "horn" expresses a metaphor of strength. It is the same Hebrew word which forms an inclusio. It forms an inclusio around Hannah's song in First Samuel two, verse one and ten, and that word "horn" also appears in yet another song, a song of prophetic expectation when Zechariah. The mute father of John the Baptist declares when his loosened tongue is allowed to be employed that God has raised up in the house of David a horn of salvation. Luke chapter 1, verse 69. Having exalted the attributes of God, attributes which God has graciously made real to David, The poet calls on the Lord. This section of the psalm is framed, as we noted, by the duplicate symmetry of David calling on the Lord, verse 4 and verse 7. And folded within the twofold frame of David's petition is more autobiographical experience. Verses 5 and 6 are a perfect example of a Hebrew bicolon. Two Hebrew bicola, in fact, where the symmetry is obvious and the expansive parallelism is clear. Remember the pattern. What is A and what is more than A, B. What is A, verse 5, the waves of death encompass me. And what is more than A, B, the torrents of Belial or destruction overwhelmed me. What is parallel to but more, what is parallel to but more than the ways of death, the torrents of Belial or destruction. What is parallel to but more than encompassed me, overwhelmed me. Now verse 6. What is A? The cords of Sheol surrounded me, and what is more than A, B? The snares of death confronted me. Parallel to the cords of Sheol, but more, the snares of death parallel to surrounded me, but more confronted me. Now, please note that the last word in the Hebrew text in colon 5a is death. Literally encouraged me, encompassed me the waves of death. And the last word in colon 6b is death. Literally in the Hebrew confronted me the snares of death. Death is the dread enemy of David and surrounds him here as it surrounds his poetic expression. Death is like torrential waves. It is like the cords of a snare. And since death encloses the two proper names here, Belial and Sheol, we learn that these two names are identified with death. Belial, the power of wickedness or destruction. Sheol, the place of the dead, namely the grave. Now, I must pause here to caution you, to caution you on what may be a marginal reading for Sheol in your translations. Sheol explained as the underworld. Sheol explained as the netherworld. This is a reading which has been informed by pagan mythology. The notion of beings trapped in the netherworld because they have displeased the gods. Reading the Bible this way is to suggest that pagan notions of the afterlife, especially the netherworld, are preserved in archaic terms like Sheol. And yet... This twofold bicloan in 2 Samuel 22, 5 and 6, bound around at the beginning and end by the word death, should give us pause over this liberal-inspired notion. Yes, this liberal-inspired notion that all means the underworld. Well, you see, all liberals believe that pagan notions have been imported into the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and in fact, these pagan notions where they remain are indications of the Old Testament's evolution from paganism, if not its syncretistic borrowing from paganism. Now, all of this illustrates that the Bible for liberals rises no higher than their own paganism. Hence, that presupposition is read back on the Bible text and the unique divine inspiration of the Bible is dismissed. Yet I observed that the structure of these two verses should give us pause with respect to any pagan or neo-pagan suggestions about Sheol. Sheol is a personification of death, and often in Scripture simply means the grave, the place of death. Since Sheol here is parallel to Belial, Belial also serves as a personification of death, especially as the consequence of wickedness or destruction. Notice the little chiasm, verse 5, death. Belial, verse 6, Sheol, death. We've got a little chiasm that is bracketing deck between Belial and Sheol. They are ep exegetical. This isn't paganism. This is biblical imagery of naming The inanimate with a personal name. David has indeed been encompassed by death, by binding cords of the tomb, potentially, which have reached out like a snare to surround and entrap him. The personification of death as Belial and Sheol enhances the enemies, verse 4, arrayed against him. And God, the Lord, hears David's cry. This one bundled up with the living God cries out to the Lord of life in the face of Sheol. In confrontation with Belial, in the throes of death, he cries out. And the Lord hears his voice, verse 7. From his temple, he hears his voice. What is this temple? There is no Solomon yet. There is no 967 B.C. yet when the temple foundation is laid. There is no temple in Jerusalem yet. What is this temple? It is the heavenly sanctuary of God from which God, the Lord of that heavenly temple sanctuary, responds and answers his poignant, plaintive servant. All right. As you can see, we're not nearly done with 2 Samuel 22, but it is time for you to take a break. Now, how does God answer David's call? And we've already noted that in verses 8 to 16. He answers him in the appearance of the theophany. The imagery here is of God, the mighty warrior, riding across the heavens, descending to the earth in a majestic display of his omnipotence. The language here echoes the theophany at Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 20. Theophany at Sinai, where God thundered and smoked and shook the earth from heaven, at the approach of his awesome majesty. The song, more poetry incidentally, the song of Deborah and Barak, in Judges chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, recalls God's march from Sinai in which the earth quaked and the heavens dripped clouds of water at the presence of the Lord. That passage from Deborah and Barak is replayed by David himself in Psalm 68, verses 7 and 8. And each of these theophonic passages anticipates Habakkuk chapter 3, in which God once more comes from the region of Sinai with power like thunder and lightning, power which shakes the mountains and causes the earth to tremble. You will notice the merismus in verse 8 and verse 16, the complement of heaven and earth. This section of David's song is bracketed not only by the merismus, but notice the word foundations, which is duplicated in both verses. You will also notice the parallel duplication of God's smoking nostrils in verse 9 and verse 16. The Lord's anger, verse 8, at the forces of death and destruction, forces which threaten to bind up and enwrap this one bound up with his life. The Lord's anger burns with smoke, steaming from his nostrils, consuming fire flaming from his mouth, burning coals ignited by it. The cosmic enemies of the Lord and his people, death and destruction, are met in a cosmic clash of the Lord God who is the death of death and the destroyer of destruction. Do these minions of hell breathe out fire and smoke and darkness and the shaking of the earth as their infernal hordes march through the earth screech through the heavens, raining terror and bloodshed and ruin upon the cosmos. Then the Lord of heaven shall march forth to the battle, and all the powers of death and hell shall be consumed in his fierce anger. David's march against his foes is anchored in the battle march of the Lord, who descends from heaven to do battle with the principalities and powers. The rulers of the darkness of this age. Snare David never as he is ensnared by the Lord in theophonic glory. Surround David never as he belongs to the Lord of glory who surrounds him with victory. The glory Lord with the blast of his nostrils scatters death and destruction and hell itself. The theophany of Second Samuel 22 is God's march for the salvation of his servant, his terrible march for the deliverance of the man after his own heart. So that emerging from this vision of God's theophonic march to victory, David in verses 17 to 20 is delivered and rescued from the forces of death, from his strong enemy, verse 18, and from those who hated him. Notice the sequence. In his distress, David cried out to the Lord, the Lord whom he prized as his rock and fortress. Cried out and the Lord heard him from his holy temple, And the Lord descended with fury and power in response to David's cry, descended to confound and scatter the enemies of David, the allies of death and destruction, the grave and hell itself arrayed against the Lord's anointed. He rescued me, verse 20. David has been heard and answered by the theophonic Lord. And the Lord has done this because he delighted in snatching his elect from the powers of darkness. He delighted in me, verse 20. And that statement, he delighted in me, is the transition to the next section of the song, verses 21 to 25. The next section of the song with its declaration that God has rewarded David according to his righteousness. At first, this confuses us, even baffles us. What was delightful in David, especially in the Bathsheba-Uriah event, or the Tamar-Absalom event, or the subversion of his kingdom by Absalom, or the murder of Amasa by Joab, How do any of these incidents in David's biography, David's life, justify a duplicate statement? The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Several commentators remark that this is works righteousness and meritorious works righteousness at that One noted scholar has even translated the Hebrew text of verse 21, and I quote, The Lord dealt with me by my merit, unquote. Such rank Pelagianism or paganism should alarm all Christians, especially Protestant Christians. Was the Reformation not a battle against merit? And did not the Protestant reformers anathematize human merit in any sense because it would diminish the grace of God? If in our day we hear voices raising a defense of merit in Protestant circles, should our antenna not go up? Should we not realize that we are hearing something that is not Protestant and not biblical? In fact, should we not realize that when we hear modern Protestants defending merit, that we are hearing the voice of paganism and Pelagianism, however disingenuous those persons may be? Let us be very clear. If merit advances, grace diminishes. A religion of merit, no matter how well clotured in the rhetoric of grace, is a religion opposed to the Protestant Reformation, a religion that exhumes the ghost of Augustine's nemesis Pelagius, a religion that places human works in the citadel, not divine grace. Let us be absolutely clear. There is no place for merit in sinners in the religion of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, period. Period. Well, what are we to make of 2 Samuel twenty-two, twenty-one 21 to 25, and its parallel in Psalm 18, 20 to 24? It is quite simple. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a Ph.D. in Hebrew to figure it out. It is quite simple. David is talking in this psalm about his relationship To his enemies. Look at verse 1 again. He has underscored his battles against the cosmic enemies, death and destruction, verses 5 and 6. God the Lord has marched forth for his deliverance, deliverance from these enemies, and he has done so because he delighted in David. Delighted in David, which is but another way of saying he bestowed his grace on David. For how does any sinner become the object of delight, the object of delight to the all-holy, all-righteous God? Very simple, once again, is it not? Basic Protestant doctrine, basic Pauline doctrine. By grace are you saved because God graciously took delight in you. It is a perspicuous message of the Bible. It is what the Protestant Reformation said is plain and clear. And you don't need a doctorate in order to read it. By grace are you saved because God graciously took delight in you. For your merits, God forbid. For his grace, never for your merits. For your works, God forbid. That's just another way of saying God rewards you for your merits. Your works don't deserve any rewards because you've only earned demerits, not merits. If God rewards you, it is by his grace and not by your sinful nature, which always corrupts and taints your works and earns you demerits, only demerits and nothing but demerits continually. That's the gospel of Protestantism. Grace, not merit. That's the gospel of Paul. Grace not merit. That's the gospel of the good news of the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, grace not merit. So God has graciously delighted in David, and as David goes forth in righteousness against his enemies, who are also the Lord's enemies, God vindicates David's integrity over against Saul, over against Absalom, over against Shiva. Over against the Philistines, David stands in God's grace and out of God's grace, he walks in righteous integrity over against Saul. He walks in righteous integrity over against the Philistines. He walks in righteous integrity over against all his enemies. He has not acted wickedly against his God, verse 22, in the matter of his enemies. And God vindicates the righteousness of David vis-a-vis his enemies out of his grace, not out of David's merits. David is blameless and without iniquity in relation to Saul and his enemies. Verse 24. As the blameless and righteous Lord had made David a co-laborer with him in defeating the enemy powers, cosmic and earthly, so David becomes identified with the blameless and righteous character of the Lord. He participates in it by grace, not by merit. He participates in it by union with his Lord, not by merit of his works. The identification and union of David with the Lord God is a mirror reflection. God labels this one with the attributes of his own integrity, his own righteousness, his own blamelessness. Look at verses 26 and 27. They make this absolutely clear. They are a perfect reciprocal mirror-like relationship. With the kind, God shows himself kind But we realize as good Protestants that the kindness God shows is the kindness God bestows by grace. So the child of grace who shows kindness is one on whom God has bestowed kindness by his grace. With the blameless, God shows himself blameless. But we realize as believing Protestants that the blamelessness God shows is the blamelessness God bestows by grace. So the child of grace who walks blameless, that is, in integrity, is the child on whom God has bestowed blamelessness or integrity by his grace. And so it is with the pure in verse 27, the righteousness, blamelessness, integrity, Purity, which David displays here, is related to the context of his song. Again, verse 1 sets the context of these verses. David acted righteously, blamelessly, with integrity and purity in relation to Saul and all his enemies. He did it by the grace of God, by God's grace, which drew him into heaven's righteousness, heaven's blamelessness, Heaven's integrity and heaven's purity. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is of grace alone and not by works, lest grace be not grace. If it is of grace alone and not by merit, let grace, lest grace be not but let let me start again. It is of grace alone and not by merit, lest grace be not grace. You cannot talk up merit and not talk down grace. It simply is impossible, and that is bedrock Protestantism. Verse twenty-eight reprises the theme of the upward and downward vectors which we have noted throughout our study of the life of David, the abasing of the proud and the saving of the abased, is a motif which originates with Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, verse 7. Verse 29 draws David into the light of God's own glory. What illumines David's darkness, whether it is his his distress, his oppression by the forces of darkness... What places David in the light is God, who is the light. The mirror reciprocity shines out once more. In thy light, O Lord, we see light. We walk in the light. The eschatological light draws David into its brightness. The next section, which extends from verse 31 to 46, is a description of the Lord God as the enabler. If David is, on account of his sin by nature, totally unable to win the victory, to free himself from the bonds of death, to perform righteousness with respect to his enemies, to walk in the light of heaven, if David is by nature totally unable, sounds like a good Calvinistic doctrine, if David is by nature totally unable, then God must make him able. David's total inability must be transformed by God's total sufficiency. Make me able in the day of your great power, O Lord, if I may give a rough paraphrase of Psalm 110 verse 3 in the King James Version. Make me able in the day of your great power. God makes David able. Able to be blameless because David is conformed to God who is blameless. Verse 31. The mirror identification is crucial here. David's blamelessness in verses 24 and 26 is the fruit. It is the fruit of his participation in the blamelessness of God. God graciously enabling him by uniting him unto himself. That mirror returns in verse 33, where the blameless are set in God's way. That way here, ep exegetical of God's ordinances and statutes in verse 23, his very ways in verse 22. Sandwiched between verses 31 and 33 are the two rhetorical questions of verse 32. Reminding us once again of the rock imagery of the opening verses of this chapter, David here renews his confession of the incomparable majesty and worth of God the Lord. From his incomparable role as the fitter and enabler of his beleaguered warrior warrior king, God conforms David to his own theophonic warrior image. If the Lord girds on his theophonic garb, then David girds himself with strength and power for the battle. Verse 40. If the Lord shatters, devours, there's the reversal of Sheol and Belial imagery. If the Lord shatters and devours and destroys his enemies in his cosmic march to victory, David mirrors his Lord in shattering, devouring, and destroying all his enemies. These are autobiographical reflections of the campaigns of David here, perhaps in this case more general than they are particularly specific, but they are autobiographical nonetheless. Verse 42 is likely a reference to Saul, a specific reference to a specific person, a specific enemy. Saul who looked to the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. 1 Samuel 28 verse 6. And verse 44 is likely a reflection on the contentions of Saul, Ishbosheth, Absalom, and Sheba. A reminder that David was forced to deal with tensions tensions and contentions from within his own tribe, from within his own nation, even from within his own family. But the poem moves to its doxology by way of a more than Israel motif. The poem moves to its doxological conclusion by way of a cosmic motif. David is not just king of Israel, he is Roshkoim, he is the head of the nations, verse 44. And the parallel, the duplicate parallel of the Bnei Nekar, the children or sons of the foreign lands, in verses 45 and 46, is an emphatic declaration of the submission of the nations in foreign lands to the headship of David. This too is a poetic narrative reminiscence of David's campaigns beyond the borders of Dan and Beersheba, how he stretched the nation of Israel to fold in the foreigners from the brook of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Incipient cosmic rule as the kingdom of David encompasses the kingdoms of this world And the scepter of David extends its sway to the children of foreign lands. These Gentiles will bow to the throne of David and bask in the lamp of his sovereignty. This song of David will be sung among the Gentile nations He will glorify God for his grace and mercy, even as David does in verse 50. The Gentiles shall come to the light, to the lamp of the Lord, and together with David they will rejoice with the people of God in the root out of the stem of Jesse. Is this not what Paul tells us? Is this not what Paul tells us has happened when he cites 2 Samuel 22, verse 50, in Romans 15, verse 9? Is this not what the inspired interpreter of David's song tells us as he sings the song of the eschatological David who has folded the Gentiles, the nations, the children of foreign lands into his glorious kingdom under his benevolent, his gracious, his merciful scepter. Second, Samuel 22 is not only poetic narrative, it is prophetic narrative. The eschatological David is here, here in the song of the protological David. And because the eschatological David is here, this song belongs to you. You who have been folded into the kingdom of great David's greater son. You who have been transformed by the rock. The rock who is Christ. First Corinthians 10 verse 4. This is your song. You who belong to Jesus. Your story in song. Your story in the song of his story. For the narrative ripples flow once more. The rippling narrative mirrors of God in David David in God, of the heart of God in David, of David after God's heart. The life of God and the life of David interface. The ripples of God's character ebb forth in David who reflects the character of God. And if God is blameless, then blamelessness ripples out in David, a gift of the grace of God. If God is righteous, then righteousness ripples out in David, a gift of the grace of God. If integrity is characteristic of God, then integrity is mirrored in David, a gift of the grace of God. If iniquity is not present in God, then In God, David has no iniquity, a gift of the grace of God. And so we begin to see, we begin to see the narrative symmetry, the poetic parallelism, the narrative poetic conformity of the mirror images, God imaged in David, David bearing the image of God. Heaven imaged in David, David bearing the image of heaven. Did you notice There is no sin of David in this psalm. No sin of David listed in this psalm. And why? Why? Because we see David in this psalm from the standpoint of God. From the standpoint of heaven. In 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, we see David from the standpoint of the eschaton. We see David from the standpoint of the eschatological David. That's what we see here. Is the eschatological David righteous? The prothological David stands in his Righteousness. Is the eschatological David blameless? The protological David stands in his blamelessness. Is the eschatological David perfect in integrity? David's life ripples forth from the perfect integrity of that David. Is the eschatological David without sin? The protological David is sinless in him is the eschatological david lord and king of the nations the protological david extends his scepter over the gentiles second samuel 22 and psalm 18 are messianic christological Eschatological as verse 51 of Second Samuel 22 clearly testifies. For who is the anointed? Who is the Messiah? Of verse 51. He is David and his seed. And who is able to perform the forever? The ad olam in the Hebrew text. Who is able to perform the forever feature of verse 51? Messiah forever, seed of David forever. Who is able to be king and anointed of the Lord forever? Only Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus only. Only the Son of God who is at the same time. Now those are narrative ripples. Look at those. Only the Son of God who is at the same time, Son of David. Only the Son of God is able to interface with David's song and sing 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 in perfection, in completion, in glorious, majestic, gracious profusion. Only the Son of God could cry out unto the Lord in His distress his soul sorrowful unto death. Only the Son of God could fully express the torrents, the waves of Sheol and Belial flooding over him as the wrath and dread of death ensnared his soul. Only the Son of God could endure the shaking of the cosmos as the earth quaked and the sun was blotted out and darkness covered all the land, darkness which he felt, darkness hiding him from the face of God. Only the Son of God could endure the reverse interface, the contradiction of what he was not. Becoming sin who knew no sin, only the Son of God could endure the reverse narrative interface so that sin and its contradiction would be reversed. Reversed for His people. Reversed for the nations and His people. Reversed. So that their story might be his and his story might be reflect, reflected, mirrored in theirs. History comes full circle. History comes full circle. David's history. And Christ's history, protological and eschatological. The objective history comes full circle with full and complete narrative poetic interface. The objective history incorporates your Objective history, so that subjectively, subjectively, you may sing. You may sing the mighty acts of God in the eschatological David, and you may live, live reflecting His work in your life by His grace. Never by your merit. You may live reflecting the drama of 2 Samuel 22 in the fullness. The fullness of that drama in the heavenly Son of God, your rock, your deliverer, your savior, Your life, ad olam, forever. There's your song. Three thousand year old song belongs to you. Because heaven's David sang it for you. Any questions or comments? Any remarks you would like to make? Queries you would like to propose? Ling? Well, I think
1: it is uh, very apt to say that, look, there was no sanctuary, there was no temple during David's time, so that when he writes psalms in which he refers to the temple the question has to arise, which temple is that? And it seems like you have to say, an eschatological view of that psalm is the only view that can answer some of those very difficult questions in the Um, psalm. Not only of the fact that he's got to be caught up into an eschatological temple, in Psalm, for example, Psalm 63, he says, he's in the desert of Judah. And he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Um, I mean, we, we have no record of any sort of temple sort of building with the priest of Nob, even. Um, nor do we have anything except for the tent of, uh, in Jerusalem. Um, which we know is throughout and the And a child. Go ahead. Right. And, uh, you know, that's where the burnt offerings. But then when he says in Psalm 51, burnt offerings you do not desire. I mean, those are just huge echoes of Hebrews. Um, the blood of bulls and goats is not what God <laughs> desires. I mean, it's almost as if he knows, he sees um, that. You know, it's almost as if he has been caught up into a heavenly eschatological temple and he is able to comprehend why God does not desire the blood of bulls and goats. I mean, would you
0: agree? And your observation uh, underscoring the fact that it must be this preternatural or transcendent eschatological temple uh undercuts the attempt to de-eschatologize the psalm and that motif before the Solomonic temple is erected. And as you know, this is particularly the liberal paradigm that, that the word temple here is anachronistic, and therefore the psalm has been edited by somebody who is post-Solomonic or, or perhaps even post-exilic. So the liberals always have a convenient way for corrupting the eschatological thrust, which is what Voss points out over and over and over again in his reviews of the liberals, they de-eschatologize the scriptures, they de-eschatologize God, they de-eschatologize Christ, they cannot abide the eschatological focus because it is primarily and principally supernatural. And that's what galls them. They simply cannot abide. They are post-enlightenment men, they cannot abide the reality of the supernatural. They're post-Renaissance men, they're post-Greco-Roman Hellenistic men, they are pagans, neo-pagans, as Peter Gay has pointed out so very well. <clears throat> uh, there's another question back there. Is, is your hand up, or are you just waving at me because it's Papa Daddio again? Go ahead, daughter of mine.
1: Okay, father of mine. Um, my question is the language. Something paternal there. Go ahead. <clears throat> <laughs> the language that he uses um, with, and this may be stretching it out of. Um, the rock, the the refuge, the earth shaking, the foundations of heaven shaking, smoke going up. Um, is he recapitulating the exodus and the entrance into the land imagery and identifying himself with that prehistory, uh, with you know the rocks being struck in the wilderness, the cities of refuge? You know, the, the Sinai, Sinaitic Mountain, the, the dwelling of the cherub, cherubs like the, the cherubim, the heavens, uh, the dark canopies, the temp- tabernacle. Is he kind of taking all of that imagery that would have been familiar and treasured and looking at his life through that? I think if
0: you had been on time, you would have heard me identify that. <laughs> Uh, yes, you're right to uh, remind us once again, or to allow me to tell, tell you what I already told everybody else, that, that Exodus 19 is in the background of this, as well as Judges chapter 5, as well as Psalm 68, as well as Habakkuk chapter 3.
1: Uh, right. If I'm picking it up and
0: I wasn't even here. <laughs> well, we can attribute it to great minds think alike.
1: <laughs> Or that you
0: were (laughs) well-catechized.
1: Someone's doing something right. Yes, the the march of
0: God from Sinai and the Exodus motif replays itself. So that theme is here as a background. But I want you to notice the cosmic warrior motif, which is particularly adapted to David's warrior status. That, I think, is what is being mirrored more particularly here and that warrior status of God was reflected even at Sinai as he marches forth for his demonstration of his power and greatness to his people. He's going to preserve them in the wilderness. I wasn't calling on you yet. There was another question.
1: Oh yes, um, because uh, there's one other psalm in First and Second Samuel, one of David's lament for Saul and Jonathan in Second Samuel, you know, one eighteen through fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of interpreters then put all three of the psalms together, and you know, I realize I'm, I'm assuming you might see the mighty fallen in that psalm related to the, the themes that you've expressed. Are there are there any other elements, any Hebrew, can, you know? word comparisons like you mentioned of the other two Psalms or anything else? That work I haven't done. I have
0: done the work on chapter 22 with uh, 1 Samuel 2. Uh, and I haven't noticed in any of my reading anybody that did any work to compare 1, 2 Samuel 1 with 2 Samuel 22. The motif of uh, upward and downward, uh, mighty or fallen and so on, that definitely is there. But <clears throat> I think what Uh, separates the lament from this song and from Hannah's song is the fact that it is a poignant, poignant dirge. It's kind of a funereal uh, testimony, which is not, so to call, so to speak, recalling the Magnalia Dei as much as it is reflecting upon the sorrow or the tragedy that has occurred on Mount Gilboa. So therefore, I, I would distinguish it from the overall literary paradigm of the bookends to his theological uh, th- um, uh, theme and the way he constructs the narrative. Anita, did you have a question comment? Okay. All right, Um
1: uh, I have a question back again on the Psalter um, because it seems like there's a certain revelation of the New Testament worshiper in the person of David could we say the same for the Psalms by, let's say, the Son of Korah, or the Psalms that um, take place uh, that are more corporate, uh, that, that take place during the round of song? Uh, I,
0: <clears throat> I, I uh, don't want to move away uh, from a corporate dimension to this altar or the fact that as we deal with individuals, we're dealing with individuals who are part of a corporate community in worship. Um, and in so doing, I want to fold in the church of the Old Testament, the kahal Yahweh, that called out of the Lord, which is ekklesia in the, in the Greek New Testament. Uh, but I'm not featuring it here because this is David's kind of individual testimony. Though I think when he talks about his headship over the nations, he's folding himself into a corporate entity. Now, there's, you could work with that and expand that, and particularly see if he uses that kind of imagery in the Psalter with the Psalms that he himself pens. And, and look, you know, look in that protological, eschatological relationship, the headship of David, headship of Christ. So I think that's promising. And that's all kind of a corporate inclusi- inclusive uh, language and imagery. So yeah, I, I I'm I'm in favour of that, though I'm not featuring that here, though it if you're going into Psalms which have that uh, that motif, yes, by all means. And and you bring the New Testament worshipper into David's consciousness, yes, he's a reflection of the New Testament worshipper, even as he is, Paul points out, as a reflection of the Gentiles praising God. So here are the Gentiles in David's song singing along with him before the worshiping throne of God. All right, more poetry next week, at least seven verses of it, as we go to Second Samuel 22 and the so-called last words of David and then beyond.